Philippians 2, 19 to 30, hear the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, so that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Barcelona, 27th August, 2010. Dear Giovanna, it seems such a long time since we last caught up with each other's news. I'm writing to tell you that I plan to take my holiday in Italy and that it would be lovely to see you again and spend some time together. I'll be in the north of the country between the 12th and 17th September, so let me know which day is the most convenient for you. I cannot wait to see you again. Lots of love, Beatrice. Now, um, if I were to say that that letter is found in the Bible, you would say, no, it's not. I've read the Bible, and that's not in there. At the same time, there are letters like that in the Bible that just sound like, chatty sharing of news. And the section that we're in today sounds just like that. If you were just to to find a scrap like I did of a personal letter and read it, you would say, well, that's just a, a friend sharing news, travel plans with other friends and talking about common friends. And so you might wonder why this is in the Bible in the first place. We who are evangelical Christians emphasize that the Bible is the Word of God, and quite rightly. But at the same time, sometimes we forget that it is a very, very human book. It was written by humans in historical situations, and so the natural thing for them would be to share news one with another. What we have is kind of travel plans here of Paul talking to his friends in Philippi and sharing news about plans for travel and mutual friends and their activities. But at the same time, since it is the Word of God, we will find that this travel plan uh, has also some instruction for us. And so we're going to read about these travel plans and read this as, as a friend, writing to other friends about mutual friends and their plans. But at the same time, we will find that it serves a purpose in scripture and it serves a purpose particularly in the context of this letter it is not some sort of a a digression that has nothing to do with where paul has been going and we meet two two men here particularly we meet timothy and we meet epaphroditus 
Now, we first met Timothy in Derby or Lystra in Acts chapter 16. If we read through Acts, we met him there. Paul and Silas were passing through Asia Minor, and they met this young man named Timothy. And they saw promise in him, and so they recruited him to be part of their missionary team. And so they took him along in their their westward trek across Asia Minor, now Turkey, until they bumped into the sea and could go no farther in Asia Minor. And then they crossed over the sea, and they landed in what we call Europe, and Timothy was still with them, and they went to a city called Philippi. And in Philippi, on the one hand, it didn't go so well for Paul, but on the other hand, it went very well. He was beaten along with Silas. He was thrown into prison, and um, there they, they were basically run out of town. But they left behind a few believers and their families, and um, Timothy was there. Timothy was, this is one of his early missionary experiences with Paul. And, uh, but he wasn't thrown in prison. He was a junior partner. He wasn't such a big target. But when ta- Paul and uh, Paul was a target of persecution a little bit later in the neighbor, neighboring city of Berea, Silas and Timothy stayed in that town. And so when Paul was run out, Silas and Timothy got to stay. When Paul wanted to send someone back into that region of Macedonia and check on the church in Thessalonica and encourage the church, he sent Timothy. And so Timothy went in now on his own to encourage the church. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians. And then we find out later that um, Timothy was a minister in his own right in the area of Ephesus. Now, it looks like Timothy became a favorite of the Macedonian churches. The Macedonian churches that we know about were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And it looks like Timothy made several visits there, and he became a favorite of theirs. He was also Paul's most constant and faithful traveling companion. Paul wrote, uh, as far as we know, 13 letters. Uh, Well, you wrote others that we don't have, but 13 letters in the New Testament. Timothy is mentioned in 10 of those 13 letters. And Paul referred to him as his true child. Here he calls him his son, his child. And he also trusted him with a very delicate mission to the church in Corinth, which was a very problematic church. Eventually, Timothy ministered in Ephesus on his own, and at the very end of his life, as far as we know, in 2 Timothy, Paul's last writing that we have, he was writing to Timothy and saying, please come visit me soon. He wanted Timothy to be with him as he ended his days on earth. Now, here what we have is a summary of Timothy. If you look at verse 22 of our text, it says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how is a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And that's the, the constant uh, characteristic that we have of Timothy throughout the New Testament, constantly serving with Paul in the work of the gospel. Now, we don't know. It's possible, maybe even likely. We don't know, but it may be that the, the believers in Philippi knew that Paul couldn't go, that he was in prison, and he was awaiting trial before Caesar. And so he knew, they knew Paul couldn't go, but it could be that they requested a visit from Timothy. And here, Paul is explaining that he couldn't send him quite yet. Verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon. Maybe in response to a request that Timothy. 
But then the reason, he says, I hope to send them to you soon. It may not be an answer to a request on their part, but rather it may be simply because he was concerned about the situation in Philippi because he says, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So he, he wanted to send Timothy to Philippi that he would bring news back or send news back about how the Philippian church was doing so that Paul might be cheered about the Philippian church. And then he goes on and he explains why Timothy, why Timothy. Now, the translation here says, for I have no one like him. And it's, a, it's an unusual word. It says, I have no one like-souled or same-souled. I have no one with the same soul. And the question is, the same soul as whom? And the answer seems to be the same soul as Paul. And Paul says, if I want to send you my soul, I can't do that because I'm in prison. But if I want to send you my very soul, the only person I have whom I can send to you is Timothy. He's the only one I have who is the same soul as I am. And what is that soul? It says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, it was doubtless that Paul, his soul, was genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. And Timothy's same soul was also genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. And here, Paul, perhaps with some exaggeration, he, he contrasts him to everyone else in verse 21. For they all seek their own interests. Now, we know that not all of them did because we're going to meet at least one, Epaphroditus, that didn't seek his own interest. And we also saw in chapter 1 that there were some who preached the gospel out of pure motive. So, so this seems to, be, seems to be something of an exaggeration, but, but at the same time, he's speaking of many people, many so-called Christians who were seeking their own interest. And he was contrasting Timothy with these, these, these who named themselves as Christians, but were seeking their own interest. And we, we met some of those in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. rivalry. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Notice something here, that it says they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So verse 20 says that Timothy would be genuinely concerned for their welfare, the Philippians. And then he says others seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So let's line these things up. On the one hand, there is seeking one's own interests, placing our own priorities in first place. On the other hand, and these are grouped together, are seeking other people's interests and seeking Christ's interests. So these go together. So the contrast is between, on the one hand, seeking our own interests or seeking Christ's interests and others' interests. These are inseparable. In other words, how do we seek Christ's interests? By not seeking our own interests, on the one hand, and positively speaking, by seeking the interests of others. And, and we've already been told this. Paul already started the chapter Chapter 2, uh, by saying this, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So those who name the name of Christ, those who call themselves Christians, put themselves in a contradictory place if they live for their own interests. 
You see, a Christian is one who seeks the interests of Christ. And how is that interest of, of Christ and his interest, placing those interests first, how is that manifested? It's manifested by seeking the interests of others above our own. Now, after talking about his plans for Timothy, sending Timothy, Paul said in verse 21, And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. But he said he couldn't send Timothy quite yet because in verse 23 he says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. What was coming up with Paul? You remember, right? A trial. Exactly. A trial before Caesar. And so it wasn't a a propitious time for him to be sending Timothy away. And it looked like it was going to come down one way or the other soon. So it wasn't going to be a long delay. But he said, I need to see how this is going to go. Then I'll send Timothy. But then he said, I trust that I myself will come. What was Paul expecting? To be condemned and killed? No. He was expecting to be released. And as we know, uh, as we piece together New Testament history, it looks like he was released and had further years of ministry. So that's the first one. That's Timothy. And then we have Epaphroditus. Now, Timothy was Paul's man for the Philippians. Epaphroditus was the Philippians' man for Paul. Okay, so, so Timothy was the one that Paul would send to the Philippians. Epaphroditus was the one that the Philippians sent to Paul, and he was sending him back. Now, in the meantime, in the meantime, before he sent Timothy, he said it was necessary to send Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus was a Philippian. He was one of them. He had been sent to Paul. And we find out later that he was sent to, to Paul bearing a lot of money. We find out that in chapter 4. He took a, a lot of money from the Philippians to Paul as a gift to sustain him while he was in prison. And then Paul sent him back, apparently with this letter in hand. So he, he served to get the letter to the Philippians. Now, Paul heaped praise on Epaphroditus. He heaped praise on him in verse 24. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He calls all Christians his brother. He calls all of his, his, his companions in the ministry fellow workers, and a few of them he calls fellow soldiers. So here he's heaping praise on him. And then he says... And your messenger, the word here is apostle, which means sent one, your apostle and minister, and this word minister has to do with priestly ministry. Uh, we could translate it something like liturgist, uh, that word that we have in English, not a common word, but it comes from this word. So your apostle and liturgist to my need. He is ministering to my need. And then we find out later about this monetary gift, which Paul considered to be two things. I don't want to get ahead, but he considered it to be two things, a help for his needs and an offering to the Lord. And that's why this priestly language. So this, this gift that Epaphroditus brought was, a, was an offering to the Lord, and he was performing the priestly gift or priestly duty of offering it to the Lord even as he handed it over to Paul. Now, some people... Some people, um, in light of this effusive praise, some, some scholars think that there was some sort of a question mark about Epaphroditus. Like maybe he hadn't done his job well, or maybe he was 
was uh, was bailing out on Paul early, and Paul had to praise him in order to kind of cover over whatever fault or whatever question, uh, whatever disappointment there might have been in the Philippians about Epaphroditus, their messenger for Paul. That that's not that's possible, but it doesn't seem necessary. It could simply be that Paul just regarded him this way, and it was a way of thanking the Philippians. This is a thank you letter, as we'll finally get to see in chapter 4. And by praising the messenger, Paul was praising and thanking those who had sent the messenger. And, and that's what we would do, too, if somebody were to send us a gift by the hand of another. We would thank them for the gift and say, oh, by the way, the person you sent, what a delight. What a beautiful person you sent. Thank you so much. It was, it was so kind of you to send the gift and also to send such an amazing person to minister to my needs. Now, there were two reasons why Paul thought it necessary, as he said, to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. The first one is because Epaphroditus was longing for them. He was longing for them. Paul had already told us in chapter 1 that he was longing for them. And now we find that Epaphroditus was longing for them. Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all. And there's a special reason why he was longing for them. He was distressed because they were distressed. And they were distressed because he had been sick. Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, he wasn't distressed because he'd gotten sick. That wasn't it. He was distressed because they had heard that he had gotten sick, and he knew how concerned they would be about his sickness. So he got sick, they were distressed, he heard that they were distressed, and he was distressed because they were distressed. What's the solution to take care of all of this distress? Well, send him back so that they can see each other and their distress will be relieved. And then Paul goes on to say, he, he was not just a little bit sick. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. So here Paul is magnifying the, the extent and the seriousness of his illness and the fact that God's mercy was great, that he rescued him from a no small illness, from a very great illness that he had suffered along the way. God had mercy on him. And then he says, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Think about that. Somebody sends you a gift by a messenger. The messenger gets sick along the way. How would you feel about that? The messenger almost dies on account of you on account of bringing you a gift. And Paul says, oh my goodness, he almost came near to death in serving Christ and in serving you, but in serving me as well. And that would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And this expression, sorrow upon sorrow, it may just be an expression about great sorrow. It may be the sorrow of sickness and then added the sorrow of death or the sorrow of Paul being separated from. And then in addition to that, the sorrow of, of having this and not on his conscience, but simply in his memory of somebody dying to serve him. That's the first reason that, that, um, that he wanted to send him. He wanted to send him because he wanted to see him. And he wanted them not to be distressed. And he says here, uh, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And then verse 28, 
I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Now, uh, this second reason is, is, a, is a positive reason, so that you may rejoice. And we've seen joy all through this letter. I want you to be rejoicing again and seeing him again. I know that that will be, uh, make you to cause you to rejoice. And then it says here that I may be less anxious. Probably this is an unusual word. It's something like more unsorrowful. So Paul was sorrowful because of his sickness. And he says, I want to be more unsorrowful or less sorrowful. So I, 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 you'll rejoice and I'll be less sorrowful if he gets safely to you. So the second reason was their joy and his unsorrow. Now, now look at something here. This is fascinating. Fascinating, the, the reciprocity here. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Paul says to them, complete my joy. So you all, you Philippians, make my joy complete. And then he says, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you so that you may rejoice. So he says, my joy to some degree is in your hands. And I'm commanding you to complete my joy. And now I am reciprocating. I am sending Epaphroditus to you because I know that your joy is to some degree in my hands. And so if, if you're going to work to complete my joy, I want to work to complete your joy. And as I've said, my, my idea of joy has been changing as I'm studying this, this letter once again. There, there is a bedrock reason for joy that we will get to in chapter 4 that does not have to do with our circumstances. There is a bedrock reason for joy in the Christian life that is not dependent on circumstances. However, up to this point, up to this point, circumstances have played into Christian joy. That's why Paul could say, you complete my joy. You have it in your hands, the possibility of completing my joy, and I have the possibility of adding to your joy. So think about that. Think about this, this dependence, this partial dependence, others people's, other people's joy on us and our joy on other people. That's quite a burden, isn't it? But it also opens up delightful possibilities. Think about that. Think of the kind of superpower that we all have. If we're believers, this kind of superpower to add joy to other Christians. But what delightful possibilities that opens up. And this is the effect of not putting our own interests first, but rather putting other, in, other people's interests first. We can add to their joy. And that's something that we all want in life, isn't it? We all want that. We're, we're all, we're all, all humans are going for that joy. We're, we're all trying to find it in some way or another, and it, it often just, just slips out of our grasp. We, we experience a little bit of it, and then, then it's gone. Well, well according to, to this structure, we can help each other in the journey. It's not a, a solitary pursuit. You all are pos partly responsible for my joy, and I'm partly responsible for your joy. What an amazing, what amazing possibility this opens up for us, that we're not just solitary individuals in a lonely universe trying to find some basis for joy in this life, but rather we are partners together for each other's joy. Make my joy complete, says Paul, and I'm going to do what I can to 
invest in your joy as well. Now Paul ends this. Verse 30, he says, uh, For he nearly died for the work of Christ. He's already mentioned that. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, whom was whom was was Epaphroditus serving? Well, it says that he was serving Paul. He was obviously serving the Philippians. But here he says he nearly died for the work of whom? The work of Christ. So serving the Philippians, serving Paul, was serving Christ by putting their interests, Paul's interests, the Philippians' interests, before his own. Now this language here, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, that, that sounds kind of kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, come on folks, you, you were lacking in, in what you were doing for me. Where, where's the help that you were supposed to be sending me? But that, that would be a misreading of this, and we'll get to that in chapter 4 when he really talks about this help of the, the money that they sent. Lacking in your service to me, this was simply a way of saying, there is something lacking. I'm far from you all. I'm longing for you all. And we are not together. You are creating a lack in my life. And you can't be with me. I can't be with you. But you sent one of your own. And he made up for that. In Spanish, we say, me haces falta. Me haces falta. And it's kind of when you, you translate that, literally, it sounds kind of harsh and strange. It's, you make a lack for me. You make a lack for me. And that sounds like an accusation, doesn't it? But what it really means is, when you are not with me, there is a hole in my life. There is a lack in my life. And he's saying, thank you so much. Thank you for, for, for filling up some of that, that hole that you leave in me. Me haces falta. You leave a lack in my life. And thank you for sending Epaphroditus to fill up something of that hole. Now, um, so far, so good. That's Timothy, Paul's man for the Philippians. That's Epaphroditus, the Philippians' man for Paul. And you might say, well, that's kind of interesting biographical information, historical information, but so what? Why is this in the Bible? Once again, why is this in the letter to the Philippians? Well, one reason is it kind of fills out the historical context of the letter to the Philippians. It helps us understand what was going on and what was behind it. But there are also some clues that this is meant to be instructive to us and to them. In verse 29, it says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy. There's that word again. And honor such persons. And honor such men. So he's holding them up as an example of something. Well, what would that something be? Let's see where we've come. Some of you have been here for these two chapters, chapters 1 and 2. Others haven't. But let's see where we've come in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 1 and 2, there are repeated examples of people humbling themselves to serve other people. Repeated examples. And we get it from the very first words, where the great apostle Paul doesn't call himself an apostle. He calls himself simply a slave. But at the same time, he recognizes the elders and deacons. So he doesn't use his title but he uses the title of the elders and deacons. So the very first words, Paul humbling himself, I'm a slave. But these men are your elders and deacons. Paul also was rejoicing as he was sidelined and couldn't advance his preaching ministry. But other people 
were probably making names for themselves by preaching the gospel. And Paul says, I rejoice as he's sitting in prison while other people were out doing what he would have loved to do. And then we have Timothy, who put Christ's interest before his own and put the Philippians' interest before his own. Epaphroditus almost gave up his life for serving Jesus, for serving the Philippians, and serving Paul. What are these? These are example after example of humans doing what? Doing what we saw a couple weeks ago. Let's go go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is was also in Christ Jesus. And we saw there really the, the centerpiece of this whole letter. Have this mind in yourselves, which is was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there it is. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul was exhibiting that mind in his relationship to the Philippians. Timothy was exhibiting that mind in relation to Paul and to the Philippians. Epaphroditus was exhibiting that mind in relation to Paul and to the Philippians and to others. You see, we could look at this command in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we could easily say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. He's the Son of God. And you're telling us to have the same mind as the Son of God? Come on, Paul. I mean, we're not up to that. And Paul says, look at Timothy. If you want an example that that, that has feet of clay just like you do, if you you want a, a merely human example of someone who has the mind of Christ, look at Timothy. You want a, you want another example? Look at Epaphroditus. Yes, folks. It's possible for for humans, sinful though we might be, redeemed in Christ, to have the mind of Christ and to live towards others by putting them before ourselves. You want to know why that's possible? Well, look at Timothy. It's possible. Look at Epaphroditus. It's possible. And so he says, honor people like that. Honor people like that. Why should we honor people like that? Because in the very way they they live their lives, they constantly show us Jesus. They show us Jesus. That's why we should honor them. We look at their lives and say, oh, now I get the gospel. The gospel is the Son of God humbling himself, dying for us, giving up his privileges so that he might give me salvation. That's the gospel. And I see it in your life now. I understand what it's all about. Now I understand Jesus because I see his mind in you. Not only should we honor people like that, but even more, we should be strive. We should strive to be people like that, that others might see Jesus in us. Let's pray.
Our God, we thank you for these examples, human examples, people just like us, who were transformed by the gospel and no longer lived for themselves, but lived for Christ and lived for others. And Father, we, we look at Jesus and are amazed that, that the Son of God would become one of us, take the form of a servant, be made in our likeness, humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we see that lived out. We see that lived out in humans like us, in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so we honor such because they show us Jesus. And I pray, O oh God, that you would make us such that we might show Jesus to others. And we pray this in his name. Amen.